Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Live with Doug. We are thinking through God's Word together. Glad to have you along. Uh, good afternoon to our friend there in Great Britain. Enjoy your tea. The rest of us here will be drinking the nectar of the Holy Spirit, our coffee. Can I get an amen from anybody? <laughs> Morning, Dale and Juan, Keith. Hey, Carrie. Uh, lukewarm no more. A haircut? Yes, uh, last week sometime. So where you been, man? Where you been? It's good to have you with us. We are studying the book of Hebrews, and uh, yesterday we got into chapter 2, and we went back to Psalm 8, because the writer of Hebrews quotes Psalm 8, and Psalm 8 was referring back to Genesis 1. Well, today I want to go back the other direction and see how uh, really the, the uh, Hebrews author here is doing a quick biblical theology of the rule of man to get back to Christ to contribute to his point. So uh, so we're going to take a, a look at this. Oh, I got an amen from Juan. Excellent. I'm going to have another sip in his honor. Ah, that's good stuff. All right, so Genesis 1. God created everything, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then he says, God created man in his own image. In his own image, God created him, male and female, he created them. And then he gives this commandment or these two commandments to humanity. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. So a fundamental role that man is to play in this world that God created is make more humans. Get married, have children. I, I, I just have to stop and say, do you see why the enemy is constantly trying to destroy fruitfulness? Because Satan understands this is the fundamental, or at least one of the fundamental purposes of humanity. And the enemy is doing everything he can to squash our fruitfulness. That's what he's done from the very beginning, right? Has God really said, did God really say, reproduce, fill the earth? So birth rates all over the world are plummeting. And the entire climate agenda and the whole green energy movement, if you trace it back to its roots... The goal is to reduce the human population. It has nothing to do with the environment. It has nothing to do with clean energy. None of that. It's all power play to destroy human thriving and reduce the population. Look it up. Research it. It's all out there. Of course, they don't say that out loud anymore. It's a direct attack on what God has called us to do as men and women. Get married, have children, fill the earth. That's what he said. Secondly, he says, rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So he puts Adam and Eve in this garden and says, go make more babies, make more humans rather, and take charge of this earth I've put you in. Now think about what they had. <laughs> they had nothing. They had plants and animals. That's it. The earth was disorderly. 
there was nothing else there, just plants and animals. And God said, I've made this whole, in their case, garden that's part of this entire world. Go take charge of it. Live in it. Be productive. He's going to tell Adam, or we're told that, that he put Adam in the garden to bear fruit, to cultivate the garden, to protect it. And that's exactly what humanity did. Look what happens in Genesis chapter 4. It came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord from the, of the fruit of the ground. So Cain, now we know the story of Cain and Abel and sin and murder and all that, which is the main point. But don't miss what is implied in the, the narrative here. Cain is a farmer. He has learned to produce crops. And we read this chapter three to chapter four, you know, just a, a series, a succession of chapters. It comes by very quickly. We have no idea how long this was. Right? We know that chapter four, verse one says that Adam, the man knew his wife or had relations with his wife, and she gave birth to Cain. And suddenly by verse 3, Cain's bringing fruit from the ground. So time is moving on. We don't know how long it was before Cain and Abel were born. Could have been centuries. We, we just don't know. But uh, the point is, Adam could have been learning how to take the plant, the head start that God gave him, and cultivate it and grow more fruit and wheat and corn and all that. Abel, on his part, brought of the firstlings of his flock and their fat portions. So Abel is a shepherd. He, he's taking care of the animals. It makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Division of labor. Like Adam has two sons. All right, we've got plants, we've got animals. Cain, I'm going to train you to take care of the plants. Abel, I'm going to train you to take care of of the animals. And they did. Again, I'm I'm speculating here, obviously, in, in some elements of this. But the point is, God said, be fruitful, take charge of this earth, cultivate it. And that's exactly what they did. Uh, then we know the, the story again of the, uh, the murder of Abel and all that. Get down to verse 17. Cain had relations with his wife. She conceived and gave birth to Enoch. And he built a city. So even in the midst of sin, Cain murdering his brother, he is still doing what God designed man to do, taking charge of the earth. He built a city and his offspring do the same things. We get down here to verse 20, Ada, that is uh, Lamech's one of his wives, gave birth to Jobel. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. So here we have sinful human beings still ruling over the earth. They're building tents now. They're moving away from the area they were born and taking their livestock somewhere else, kind of this nomadic farmer idea. 
His brother name was Jubal. He was the father of all who play the lyre and the pipe. So here we have early on Genesis 4 music. Someone figuring out that forcing air through this uh, hollow piece of wood or something makes a sound. And he teaches his children how to make music. Man is ruling and subduing the earth. As for Zillah, she also gave birth to Tubal-Cain, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron. You see what's going on here? Sin did not destroy the design. It didn't, God didn't change his plan and purpose for mankind. He says, no, take charge of this earth. Build cities, culture, civilization, all of those things. That's what man is here to do on planet earth. So then we get to chapter 8 of, of Psalms or Psalm 8. And David is marveling, Lord, Yahweh, our Lord. Your name is majestic in all the earth. You've displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you've established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. You are working in planet earth, O Lord, to crush your enemies, to destroy them. He says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, which you've ordained, when I, when I ponder how great and majestic you are, I think, what is man that you take thought of him or the son of man that you take care of him? Why would you care about humans in, in this vast universe of wonderful, awe-inspiring heavenly bodies? Who are we as humans? Yet you've made him, you've made man a little lower than God, or as we saw yesterday, a little lower than the angels. But you crown him with glory and majesty. Of all this earth and the heavens and all the creation, David is marveling that God takes humans and puts a crown on our head and gives us glory and majesty, even though we're lower than the angels. And you make him, man, to rule over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. You see what he's saying? He realizes, he's reflecting back on Genesis 1. He's looking at his own crown as the leader of Israel. And he says, for whatever reason, Lord, you have, you have placed humans as the rulers of this earth. And it, it boggles his mind. It, it, it causes him to just be in awe of that. So then the writer of Hebrews, as he's reminding his audience how severe a thing it was to disobey the law of Moses, which was ordained through angels, it is exponentially worse to reject the salvation revealed by his son, God's own son, 
and he's warning them not to drift away from this salvation, the gospel, the sufficiency of the cross and resurrection, the new covenant. Don't go back to the old covenant ways. Stay the course. Why? Because the son of God is ruling over heaven and earth. He's the one who has sat down at the right hand of the father. All things are in subjection to him and, and he's crushing his enemies. So it's in that context that the writer of Hebrews says, for he, God, did not subject to angels the world to come. Right? He didn't, he didn't put angels in charge of this earth. He didn't send angels and say, you rule and subdue this earth. Who did he give the earth to? He gave it to man. And he quotes here, someone has testified somewhere. And now he quotes from Psalm 8. What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you're concerned about him? You've made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You've put all things in subjection under his feet. And then he gives a commentary. So he just quoted what I quoted to you, what I read to you from Psalm 8. It's not the angels, as great as they are. I mean, they're, they're magnificent creatures. We know that whenever they appear in the scripture, men, men are intimidated. They're scared. They fall on their face. Angels are not cute. They're not pudgy. They're not Clarence from It's Wonderful Life. They don't have little wings and big round bellies. They don't float around playing harps. Angels are terrifying. If you actually saw an angel in his heavenly glory, you would be scared. Remember, man is a little lower than the angels. When Michael or Gabriel show up and their host of armies with them, they are powerful creatures. Don't ever assume that they're cute and tame compared to humans. They're not. But it wasn't to those majestic creatures that God gave rule over the earth. It was man, humans. We saw that. Genesis 1, Psalm 8. But then the writer of Hebrews gives us his commentary on Psalm 8 and Genesis 1. For in subjecting all things to him, that is to man, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. Two things to note about this little commentary here. Number one, do you realize three times he uses the phrase, subject to him. That's repetition for a purpose. He wants it to be understood. All things are in submission to man. That's the word. Subject is the same word used in Ephesians 5 for wives submitting to your husbands. It's the same word used in Ephesians 1 that all things in heaven and earth are in submission to King Jesus. Same thing here, submission placed under the authority of, in obedience to, that's what submission means. All things 
are in submission to man. He left nothing that is not in submission to man. But, but now, he says, we do not yet see all things in subject and submission to him. So think about this. Man has been given, given authority over heaven and earth. Well, not heaven and earth, earth, <laughs> not heaven. Jumping ahead. <laughs> He's been given authority over human, uh, over, over the, uh, sorry, I'm distracted. I'm looking, I saw M. Sand's uh, comment jump up here. You need to have a quiet word with the dominionists. Um, <laughs> not sure exactly what you're getting at. Anyway, back to my point. Don't get distracted, Doug. All the earth has been given to man to rule over. And that includes, he specifically names the plants and animals, right? And yet, if you were out here with me and we went uh, walking through the mountains, the Rocky Mountains, and we came upon a, uh, a mountain lion, Do you think we would just walk up to that mountain lion and say, hey, I am in authority over you. God has placed you under my rule. So sit, Mr. Mountain Lion, sit. Heal. <laughs> there was a, I saw a video going around last week, uh, two actually, that got my attention. One was uh, a man who had a grizzly bear as a pet and the bear came into his kitchen and stood up right next to him as he was staring out the window. And I thought, and he, and he put his paw on him. And I thought, that guy is playing with fire. And another one was a guy had apparently raised a lion. And the lion came up to him like a kitty cat. And let him scratch his chin and pet his head. This is a big lion. And I thought, wow, what is he thinking? Because that animal's nature is not simply to, uh, to be pet, petted by a human. No, we, we don't yet have complete control over humanity. We are, we are taking more control all the time. Our dominion is growing. But we're not there yet. That's what he says. We do not yet see all things subjected to him. Uh, this world has not been tamed entirely, but, but our, our dominion is growing over humanity. I mean, over the world. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Do you see what the writer is doing here? Humans have been given dominion over the earth. And we are taking dominion over the earth. But it's not all in submission yet to mankind but it is to the man, Jesus. Think about the displays of Jesus' rule over the earth that we see in the Gospels. When Jesus decides that he wants to walk across the surface of a lake and defy gravity, he just does. 
It's amazing. And Peter did this, if you remember, when Jesus invited him to. Peter walked across the top of the water. We're so familiar with that story, but think about that. You ever tried to walk across the water? Just try this in your bathtub. Put a couple inches of water in your bathtub and try to walk across it. <laughs> Doesn't work, right? Peter did it until he realized what was happening and lost his faith, and then he started drowning. Jesus exercised his dominion over what we call the natural elements and laws of nature and just walked right across the sea. Or the storm. The storm comes in raging. The tempest is strong. The disciples are scared because this is a big squall that could overturn their boat and crush them. And they go wake him up. And Jesus says, hey, storm, settle down. And the winds stop blowing. The storm immediately dissipates. Who does that? Remember the time that uh, he told him to go get the uh, the coin out of the out of the sea creature there to pay their taxes. He transforms water into wine. He just makes food on the spot. I mean, Jesus is in utter control of the entire world. So we don't see the world under the under the authority of man in entirety, but we do see the world under the authority of Jesus. Because of the suffering of death, Jesus was crowned with glory and honor. See how he's borrowing the language here from Psalm 8? You've crowned man with glory and majesty, given him dominion over the earth, well, we still have dominion yet to exercise, but Jesus doesn't. It's all in submission to him. And he was crowned with glory and honor because he went to the cross. And we'll come back and look at what that means tomorrow. So the point is, the writer is continuing his comparison of Jesus to angels to show that the consequences are severe. If you walk away from King Jesus, if you walk away from the gospel, if you leave the gospel behind for anything, in their case, in Hebrews, their case, they were tempted to go back to the old covenant shadows, the priests, the temple worship, the sacrifices, all those things. And the writer of Hebrews says, if you do that, you are walking away from the one who rules the world, the high King Jesus. And if you become his enemy, remember Psalm 110, he will crush you. Angels, as great as they are, they were part of giving the law. That law punished all who rejected it. How much worse is it to reject the message of Jesus? the king of the universe. Lon says, Jesus has power to subject all things to himself. Philippians 3, 21. Yay, Jesus. Exactly. Exactly. So don't walk away. And don't fear. This world is not spinning out of control. 
everything is in submission to Jesus. The nations, remember, he is the king of kings. I look at our government here in the U.S., and, you know, from afar, I would say to the same thing to M. Sands there, your government there in the U.K. and, and others, there's a lot of wicked people in our government leadership. And they seem to be getting away with a lot of evil. But they don't get away with anything. First of all, they will all stand before King Jesus at judgment. But it's not just a future thing. Jesus is reigning now. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he's crushing his enemies. And this earth is his inheritance. We saw that in chapter 1. He inherited all. Every animal, every plant, every nation, every people group. As we take charge of this earth and continue to rule and subdue it, we're doing it under the authority and for the sake of King Jesus. It's all his. So we have nothing to fear. Jesus wins. And he is actively bringing justice to the nations. That's what Isaiah said he would do. The government has been placed on his shoulders and his peace and blessing is increasing. And therefore, we have nothing to fear unless we walk away from him and then we have everything to fear. Think about it. Rejoice today. Be glad in who he is. And uh, we will see you tomorrow. Take care.